From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hey everybody, welcome to Open Line Friday here on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Glad you could join us as we're wrapping things up for the work week anyway. Uh, Jack Williams away today. I'm Tom Price. Glad to be joined by America's favorite theologian, Mr. Colin Donovan. I'm here to roll out the apples and see if they roll back today. I like that. This, yeah. is, this is kind of a Sisyphus thing? Yeah, it, it could be. It could be. All right. Very primal in any case. Uh, how's your summer going? Uh, it's going pretty good, actually. Uh, you know, we have the World Games in town, which yes. is endlessly fascinating. I, I'm surprised. You know, when you look at big athletics, especially yeah. in our country, and, and you know, watching millionaires uh, play sports for different sports. Sure, <laughs> sure. It seems a little different. The World Games seems like the kind of things we do in our backyard when we didn't have all the tools for the big kid games. Yeah. And, you know, and they're they're actually quite interesting and fun, and um, the athletes of war. are dedicated. They are. They are very they are dedicated. Very, very good and very dedicated, and it's endlessly fascinating. Are you following any of that? Have you been to any? We've of watched of it. Uh, my wife and daughter have been uh, down to a couple things, to the ah. rhythmic gymnastics, which are uh, individual games. They, they show up in the Olympics, mm-hmm. apparently, but they're, they're uh, mm-hmm. you know, sort of the all-round uh, quali- uh, games. So it's quite interesting. The parkour, I think it is, which is a version of extreme running, ah. jumping around obstacles that are human, man-made cities and different pretty things neat. like that. It's pretty cool stuff, actually, a lot of it. Well, very good. Well, we're not here to talk about games. We are here to talk about the faith. Uh, if any questions you may have of a theological bent, Colin is here to answer those questions at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you would like to shoot us an email, you can certainly do that. Send it to openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. Make sure you put Friday or Theology or uh, Colin in the subject line so that we can get that uh, to the right person. So we're going to lead off with an email as we're getting a call screen here. This is from John. Mr. Donovan, as you know, in Matthew 23, 9, we are admonished not to call any man father. Clearly, that does not mean that children shouldn't call their father by that name. We know that it's acceptable to call men who have been instrumental in the conversion of souls father. So, my question is, if the admonition doesn't apply to natural fathers and it doesn't apply to spiritual fathers, to whom does it apply? Could it not mean to call no man holy father? Thanks, John. No, you've got to look at the, the, the examples, rabbi, teacher, master, father. These would be names of the rabbinical disciples uh, that they would refer to their leader. In fact, Jesus got called rabbi, he got called teacher, mm-hmm. he got called master, even by his disciples, because that was you know, common to their own Jewish experience, uh, particularly with the Pharisees, where there are different schools of theology. Mm-hmm. As St. Paul will later explain, all fatherhood comes from God. 
In other words, in the natural order, God the Father is not only the source and origin of the persons of the Trinity by that eternal procession, Mm -hmm. but also of all of the activity outside of the Trinity, including creation, redemption, sanctification, which the persons, we attribute different things to them. But it all goes back to the Father. And so the idea of fatherhood as a natural source is very clear to us, where males are given their nature by uh, by God. Women are given their nature by God. I don't know where birthing persons got their nature, but <laughs> not from God. Uh, and so there is a natural origin and order coming from the divine father uh-huh. established by him. In the spiritual order, the same thing. Now, in Judaism, the, the, the fathers, the rabbis, they had different opinions, and you were taught in a certain school of theology. We sort of still have that, Franciscans, Dominicans, and others. Mm. But always subject to what the Father has taught us through Christ, through the Church. And so the spiritual fathers in the Church are those individuals who hold a true authority from the Father of all. Okay. They receive it through Christ. They receive it through the apostles. They receive it through apostolic succession. And so it comes down to our day. And they are rightly our spiritual fathers because their authority is from God. Whereas a purely theological authority, such as a rabbi or uh, a rabbinical leader of a rabbinical line of thinking and commentary would have, is not such a thing. It's it's like a, a theological school. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, in the church at least, the theological schools are scub- subject to the spiritual authority of the pope and the bishops. And that's where they're kept in line. There was nothing like this in Judaism. So if you don't have the spiritual authority that comes from the Father through Christ, through apostolic succession, you don't have spiritual authority. And that's why you can't set up your own church. You can't be a father to a particular theological group uh, following, you know, centered on some aspect of public revelation, then that's simply a human authority. It's like the pharisaical authorities. And in that sense, you're not a father, you're not a rabbi, you're not a master. Jesus was all of those because his authority was clear, just as authority in the church is also clear. Very good. Thanks so much uh, for that question. Here's one uh, from Donna, and then we'll get to the phones, I promise. Let me give you that number again, 833 288-EWTN. Okay, Donna says, we have several priests in our area who are leaving the church and allowing the lay people to return the Eucharist to the tabernacle when the last person leaves. I don't feel this is an acceptable practice. I see many who don't really believe in the actual body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. I see young people leaving the church, and I feel it is this practice of disrespect to the Eucharist. The bishop here says it's up to the priest. What are your thoughts? Uh, I don't like it, so I guess I can give my thoughts in that way. Sure. Um, you know, there was a document on the, uh, the, the worship of the Holy Eucharist outside the Mass, mm-hmm. and that was the basic document governing the, the exposition of the Blessed Sacrament. One of the things that stopped after Vatican II was the practice very common. I remember it quite clearly. You know, if you went to the noon Mass and it was over typically at, 1245 or so in those days with uh, uh, a low Latin mass. Mm -hmm. 
And afterwards, the, the priest would expose the Holy Eucharist for a while, and there would be benediction, and then they would repose the sacrament. Sure. Church said no. If you expose the Eucharist after Mass, as is done here in mm -hmm. the chapel for daily adoration, then at the end of that, there has to be the original adoration, say, by the one who exposes it. Uh -huh. And then at the end, there is typically benediction. And so at the end of the day, the friars have benediction at the end of a, a, a exposition. Now, granted, by necessity, almost anything is possible when the priest is not available. But if you simply have, you know, the, the, the tabernacle that anybody can go up and expose, you may remember the horrible days of the glass-doored tabernacles, absolutely forbidden, mm. so that people could see the monstrance or see the, see the ciborium, uh -huh. you know, and they'd have sort of a not really exposition because the host is not exposed. But, you know, it was a way of getting around this problem. But there ideally, certainly, outside of necessity, there should be some ceremony at the end by a priest or a deacon uh -huh. that would then repose uh, the sacrament. Uh, so others can be delegated for that. There's no reason that an extraordinary ministry of Holy Communion uh, could not repose the sacrament. They may not do a benediction. Uh -huh. Even an acolyte, an installed acolyte, can't do benediction. That's reserved for the deacon and for the priest, and obviously the bishop. So I, I think that's not the mind of the church, and there's probably a better way to do it that shows the kind of reverence that she's looking for and finds lacking. Donna, thank you so much uh, for your email. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address ctc at EWTN.com. Sorry, not CTC. Open line at EWTN.com. I'm, I'm, I'm channeling my <coughs> earlier <coughs> program here. Yeah, open line at EWTN.com. And again, be sure to put Colin in the subject line so that uh, nobody else gets it. So, so, so <laughs> Well, nobody else may get it anyway. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I really don't remember the whole glass uh, tabernacle you don't, thing. Oh. No. Is that a, like a 60s thing? Uh, no, I saw it uh, in the 80s. I haven't really? seen it. I haven't seen it in quite a while because that I think that by a, one of the instructions out from Rome uh, uh, disposed of that problem. It's a no-no. It's definitely a no-no. <laughs> yeah. All right. You know. So for one thing, it brings into question one of the other serious obligations of the clergy, and that is the tabernacle must be absolutely secure. Nobody should be able to come in and pry it off the altar, yeah. break the glass door, steal the Eucharist, and so on. And that obligation is in canon law, and so that one at least has to be followed. Thank strongly. you so much. In a moment, we'll be talking with Cullen in Missouri, Bob in Gaithersburg, also Rolando in Illinois. Looks like three lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN for Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Glad you're with us for Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. That uh, phone number again, because we have one line open right now. You can snag it, 833-288-EWTN. That's 
Hey, if you enjoy EWTN Bookmark with Doug Keck, you will definitely enjoy EWTN Bookmark Brief. Weekly emails, including a short video blog uh, featuring an author giving a short synopsis of their work in his or her own words. It's a lot of fun, EWTN's Bookmark Brief. If you'd like it in your email inbox, visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We kick it off with Cullen in Missouri, listening on uh, Sirius XM, Channel 130. Hey, Cullen, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, hey, how are you? Um, well, okay, so this is kind of hard for me to put into the question I'm asking, but I'm just going to, I kind of got something wrote down. Okay, that I want to okay. go so, ahead. <laughs> I've been, I've been taught, well, let me tell you this first. I, I converted to Catholicism this year. Previously, I was a Protestant. I got pretty close to God, or started, like, really, I guess, mm-hmm. starting my walk with God my sophomore year. In high school, um, I'm I'm just graduated. But anyway, um, like I said, I converted to Catholicism this year, and right now I'm struggling. Like I'm caught between like the Catholicism ways and sure. their teaching mm-hmm. and the Protestant ways. And uh, I'm a Catholic, and uh, this is kind of just um, even hurting the way I think about these things like it's just like a it feels like a war zone in my mind all the time and i'm back and forth you know maybe i'm more protestant maybe i'm not doing the right <laughs> thing or maybe well, i have to be catholic and this is hurting like my prayer so, life so you're you're like a that. human being basically is what you're saying yeah <laughs> okay yeah. <laughs> it's okay well, to be human being yeah so what it what is you must have some particular concern you want to ask about today yes uh there's there's several um well, can I ask, like, a small question with this? Like, sure. This is just, I guess, would you question, like, me saying that I'm born again if I have this problem? Because, like, that's one of my fears. Like, I I believe mm-hmm. I'm, you know, born again. You know, I have the Holy Spirit, but I feel guilty that I struggle with this. Sure. Um, well, let me tell you, there's a long line of people before you who struggle with that all the all their life. You know, uh, Paul said, I'm a worm and no man. Uh, he had to persevere to the end. He worried that having taught others, he himself would be lost. Uh, was Paul born in, in the Spirit? Yes, he was. Uh, and the Catholic idea of that is quite different from the Protestant. Uh, the idea of like, uh, which is common, and I'm not certain of which all denominations do this, something like the sinner's prayer. You, you repent and instantly you become, uh, you become a Christian, you become a believer. The Church doesn't believe that it works that way, because Christ was not a, a, a vapor who took a form and, and uh, ministered to people, but he was a human being, he was a visible uh, human being, uh, and he pr- he did the works of the Father uh, in his body, and the church, his those who followed after him, do the works of the body in the body, and so these things we call sacraments are not uh, are not things that were just invented, but they're things which the Lord established. So we know certainly that He established baptism, and that by baptism we are born again. And what we know what that means, we know it from the examples uh, in in the Gospels and in the uh, and in the rest of the New Testament. 
uh, that to be born again means to be put on Christ, to have the Holy Spirit. Different things which a more developed theology would describe as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit or the indwelling of the Holy Trinity or sanctifying grace or the grace of justice. All of these things are meaning the same thing, and that is simply that one is now one now belongs to Christ. You are his possession. Now, unfortunately, we're possessions who can walk away and, you know what, we put our wallet down on the counter and it doesn't walk away, it might get taken by somebody. <laughs> we can walk away from Christ, mm-hmm. but he never walks away from us. And so life is this constant looking to see, am I putting on Christ more and more? Because by baptism, we put it on, put him on. By sin, we lose charity. So the church's doctrine, for example, of mortal sin is the way in which we walk away from God, even if it's only for a little bit. And we were, how do we know we're back with God? We go to the priest. We go to the church. And we get that from the Gospel of John, that the very first thing that our Lord did after the resurrection in appearing to the apostles was to say, peace, I give you my peace, I leave you. And then how does, how are the apostles, what are they supposed to do to that? whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. So his redemption is continued by the forgiveness of sins. And the peace that he gives is peace between us and the Father. And so when we do fall, as we all will, we know we have a way in the church to recover that peace. Peace being not a warm and fuzzy feeling. We may never have that. I think most most people do. They have consolations and so on. But it means re- objective peace. I'm no longer an enemy of the Father. I am no longer, have no longer walked away from Christ. And I show my goodwill by going to this human being, this minister of Christ, and I say, Father, I have sinned. I've done these grave things. And in doing that, when he says, My son, I absolve you from your sins, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy he gives us that peace which Christ gave to the apostles to distribute to others, mm-hmm. and which they gave to the bishops. So what you have right now is an understanding gap between this attraction you had for the faith and what the real implications of it are. Now, you can, you can, you can fill that up a little bit by reading, say, the Catechism of the Catholic mm-hmm. Church, where you see the scriptural foundations, you see the foundations from the early church is, is the fact that the things the church does today, she's always done for 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. And so you find those foundations there, and you, you'll grow in your understanding. You'll close that knowledge gap between this attraction you feel for the church and the practicalities of it. Because like most thing in life, it's filled up with pra- practicalities. You know, what do I do when I'm sick? I go to a doctor. What do I'm spiritually sick? I go to another kind of doctor. Yeah. I go to a father. So what do I do when I'm sick? I can also be anointed, get the anointing of the sick. What do I do when I have reason Have reason, and know that I, that I can uh, have a deeper and profounder relationship with Christ, even receive him into my own body? Well, when in the church at the age of reason, you receive your first communion and you learn how to make a confession for when you walked away momentarily from the Lord. So everything sort of makes sense and you just have to keep reading and trying to understand. But the biggest thing is confidence. Have trust in God. 
The Lord established a church. He promised he would always be with it. He gave it the means in which he would stay with it, especially in the Holy Eucharist. He gave the means of resolving this disparity between sin and the holiness of God in the sacrament of penance. He gave us the means of preparation for death in the sacrament of anointing. He gave us the means of sanctifying marriage in the sacrament of matrimony. He gave us the means of, of perpetuating his ministry in the sacrament of holy orders. And you go down the list of the seven sacraments, and this is how Christ gave us a very human and incarnational way in which we, with our hands and our mouths and our own feet, would carry on the work that he started. And the church is still doing it yeah. 2,000 years later, and it will do it to the end. So keep that confidence and keep studying, and you'll fill that knowledge gap. Colin, thank you so much for your call. We're going to keep you in our prayers. God bless you, my friend. Hey, that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. Open line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN on this beautiful and uh, hot Friday afternoon. <laughs> Let's go to uh, Bob in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Don't know if it's as hot there as it is here. It is toasty. Uh, Bob is listening to us on Guadalupe Radio. Hey, Bob, what's on your mind today? Ah, uh, thank you. Um, I'm wondering uh, how can a person tell if he's making progress in the spiritual path? I mean, mm-hmm. you can you can pray, you can try, um, and and your life seems to stay the same. So, what what signs in your life should you look for to to make you feel like you're making some progress in the spiritual? Sure, life? I, I think the first thing you need to know is that very few of us ever are good judges of ourselves. Mm, yeah. We're even told that in Scripture, you know that. You know, it's the whole, even the Holy Spirit is really necessary to, you know, to make that judgment. Uh, but yes, there are certain ways because the virtue is something we should be striving for. Um, it, it it has a it has a definition. Aquinas said that for every good end, distinct end, a lot of things are very similar. Every distinct end, we can speak of a virtue. So, uh, when you you look at uh, anger. Uh, you could say, well, the the thing that opposes anger is patience, long-suffering, you know, some of these kinds of th- uh, things which relate to our response mm-hmm. to to anger. And so in the spiritual writers, you'll uh, you very often talk, discover about the examine, meaning an examination of conscience. Now, we do it before we go to confession. But it's something that we can do every day. We can do, before going to bed, we mm-hmm. can make an examination of our conscience. And like confession, we can sometimes get, you know, bogged down in the quantity. Well, I've got all these things, you know, I'm angry with this person, yeah. that person, and, you know, I have all these lesser things that I do. What's most helpful in acquiring virtue, I think, is to hone in on one thing. There's a principle that if you perfect one virtue, the as it were, the all ships rise together, all boats rise together. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, the saints recommend perfecting humility, because that's a that's a very quick way to raise all the boats. But it might be, it might be, with regard to anger. And so, when you identify what your principal weakness is, you can start sort of keeping tabs. Now. You don't have to be a scrupulous accountant here, but you have to sort of measure 
how am I am I getting better at being patient? Mm-hmm. You know, when I'm in, you know encountering that difficult person in my life, or or difficult shopkeeper, or difficult person on the road. Uh, you know, am I getting better at this? So you could start by just finding one thing that you would call your predominant fault, as classically it has been called, and sort of measure every day how the day went with respect to that. And that's one way. Um, I, w- I would strongly suggest avoiding the laundry list approach. I've got these 10 things I'm going to work on. No, get one, dispose of it, and then you can see if you've got others that uh, need as much attention as that did. Great call, Bob. Thanks so much for it. In a moment, we'll talk with Rolando in Illinois, Joseph in Buffalo, New York, Pete in Ontario, Canada. Two lines open at the moment, 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. Open line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. And we welcome you back to Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. Our phone number here, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Congratulations going out to two members of the EWTN radio family. Love this name, Catholic Voice of the Palm Beaches, WPBV, that's in Palm Beach, Florida, celebrating seven years with EWTN Radio this week. Also, Light of Truth Ministries, that would be WCLP in Lake Placid, New York, home of the uh, Olympics back in the day, celebrating eight years of solid Catholic radio with EWTN. All right, back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Rolando in Illinois listening on the great WSFI. Hey, uh, Rolando, what's on your mind today, sir? Yes, first of all, uh, I want to praise the Lord for having me and uh, bless your program. Thank you. Uh, you. I will then the second word I would like to start is the word empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Because you discussed it, because I told the, your gentleman that I am a Catholic charismatic. Uh, me and my wife has been blessed uh, to receive that empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We 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 fall short every time now and then. We are only humans, but the empowerment I mean is you will receive uh, literally your choice or your desire of the gift. For example, my wife has a gift of healing, and uh, the same with me. We just because the, the promise of God is, you just lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. As a layman, you are empowered by that if you desire the gifts. I know you believe on this. My my basic question is, you cannot do all the things your your des- your desire unless you welcome the empowerment or welcome the holy spirit in your heart he will not force himself to you it is what's happening now before i, I i'm talking by myself before i was renewed it, it is my own flesh that is that is willing uh, is working but the empowerment when you accept him and you surrender yourself, it is the Holy Spirit that is more active than your than your subconscious or okay, your uh, own. 
Yeah, uh, and, and Rolando, do you have a question for us? Yeah, my question is, what is the real stand of the big church? I'm out of uh, uh, date uh, for the charismatic, Catholic charismatic, because... Okay, I think we got your question. Um, the charismatic renewal has a place in the church. Uh, there is an international charismatic renewal. There's one in the United States. Um, and the church's understanding is theological, and the church's understanding uh, is the truth, because the church has the charism of the truth. Uh, the charismatic gifts are the free gifts of God. Uh, one can ask the Lord for them. He's not obliged to give them to you. Uh, the Holy Spirit is given in baptism, is uh, given in the sacraments, uh, an increase of it. Uh, the basis of it there is, uh, of course, that uh, once we are surrendering to God in our lives, the Lord can do many things with us, including give us the charismatic gifts. Uh, and there I'm talking more the more phenomenological ones, which are mentioned, say, in 1 Corinthians 12, but it mentions other ones there, which seem sort of dry, like administration and teaching and different things there, uh, because natural natural gifts can be uh, improved, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, just as natural virtues are improved by supernatural virtues. The natural gifts can be improved by the uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit as well, gifts with a small g, uh -huh. understood as the charismatic gifts. Um, the, so the Church's theology on the charismatic gifts is quite clear. The Church's recognition that in uh, here at the early part of the latter part of the 20th century and into the 21st century, that the gifts are present in the Church are also clear over a number of popes now consecutively. Uh, I once heard a priest give what I thought was a very useful understanding of this issue. He himself was sort of a semi-charismatic uh, in the sense that that wasn't his strong focus, but it was certainly part of his work, his ministry. And he said that his study of it was that in the early church, when the demonic was uh, and paganism was about, that the charismatic gifts were more remarkable. And like many things, when things become stable, they become institutionalized. Uh, so we have always had the institution of holy orders and so on, and they carry on. These, this is the foundation, the apostles at the foundation of the church, uh, Peter, the, uh, the foundation, the other apostles with him. Uh, and on, the, on that, the church was built. The priesthood so, uh, certainly comes from that. And this is the stable part. The charismatic part was the gift of a particular time. If the devil has his phenomena, it's not like God can be outdone. And so God was present, and then his he saw that this uh, at the after the in, in, the church became legalized and very structuralized and so on, that the gifts became somebody something that was seen more often in holy people. Now there is no as theologians will know this there is no necessary connection between holiness and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but. From this time on, they were seen mostly in the holy, in in the saintly people, people uh -huh. recognized as saint, and perhaps in our own day, Padre Pio was an individual who greatly manifested these gifts. But because they're not necessarily connected with holiness, you don't have to be holy to have the charismatic gifts. Balaam's donkey uh, <laughs> manifested prophecy <laughs> in a way, and and uh, others, uh, pagan individuals as well. And so the charismatic gifts have reappeared in our day. 
And I think we only need to look around the world to see why, and that is that the devil needs a counter, you know, point-counterpoint. Sure. And I think the charismatic movement is God's counterpoint to the revitalization of paganism in our modern world. It does not, any more than its appearance in the early church, have any any necessity uh-huh. except that God wills to give these gifts to manifest that miracles are alive, mm-hmm. to manifest all these other these other gifts. And he does it for that purpose. However, in the church, the structure Christ gave the church is key. And so that's why it, it certainly it doesn't do away with the hierarchy. It doesn't do away with any of the sacraments. Mm-hmm. It is something that is given when people are given for the benefit of others, for the benefit of the church in our day, which I think, as I noted, because of the rise of the demonic and the pagan and so on, uh, we certainly need that counterpoint from God. And so it, it's there. Yes, there are probably many in the church, you know, for years, years, we were sort of a standoffish kind of thing people had with charismatic renewal. But it's become, I think, more and more institutionalized. And there was one of the Marian fathers, I um, can't remember his name now, but he wrote a book in the 70s, a very nice little book called The Bride and the Spirit Say Come. And how these things are working together, not apart from, but within the institutional church, within the Eucharistic love of the church, within the Marian love of the church, in order to prepare the ground, as Fatima did, as Faustina did, for the Lord's eventual coming. Mm-hmm. And there's the bride, the church, and the spirit say, come. And I think we've seen that more and more to the point where the charismatic renewal seems pretty institutionalized today, you know, in their teach roles and teaching in seminary, sure, different sure. individuals in parish and, and diocesan ministries. They just happen to be charismatics, and they still have their gifts, and they're exercising their gifts yeah. on behalf of the church. And so it's really a beautiful thing. But I think it says something serious about our own time, that we needed Our Lady of Fatima, we needed Faustina, we needed John Paul II, and so on in order to wake us up. And the charismatic renewal is another part of that divine sympathy preparing for something which we just have to wait for. Yes, indeed. Rolando, thanks so much for your call. Let's go to Gina now in St. Rose, Louisiana, listening on the Great Catholic Community Radio. Hi, Gina. What's on your mind today? Uh, Yes, I was calling to see if you could tell me um, what book it is that Mother Angelica would read every year, and it was on the idiosyncrasies of the saints. Um, a pastor really wants to get the book, but he couldn't recall the mm. name of the book, and I was just hmm. wondering if you would happen to know. Well, I know what book she prominently spoke about on it, like Divine Intimacy, which is a meditation book. Yep. Uh, there's probably a little bit of that in there. Idiosyncrasies. Um, that's very interesting. Yeah, and you know, she did talk about those kinds of things, uh-huh. but sometimes I think it was out of her own head and heart, you know, the way she would lampoon the apostles a little bit. They didn't even know how to fish that's without true. the Lord's help. <laughs> uh, and she was po- pointing at herself as well, you mm, know. Sure. Uh, none running a TV station. Oh, come on, give me a break. That's never going to happen. And yet. <laughs> and, and yet. yet. <laughs> so, uh, but I don't know. Maybe we'll look into that a little bit and get back to you or... Uh, 
Uh, well, there's your homework assignment, Colin. There we go. All right, very go. good. Gina, thanks so much for your call. Here's Joseph now in Buffalo, New York, and uh, Joseph is listening uh, on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Joseph, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, how are you doing today? Great. Yeah. Uh, I'm a recent convert to faith. Uh, I came in through the Easter Vigil in 2018. Uh, I was baptized through full immersion, and mm-hmm. it's kind of perfect. Uh, I was wondering, one, what's the Catholic Church's view on full immersion uh, baptism? Can it be performed in the Catholic Church? And also, with the change in baptisms, uh, with the rites uh, changing back in the 60s and 70s, what happened to some of the prayers, such as some of the uh, exercisements and the things with, like, exercise salt that were done during mm-hmm. baptism? Yeah. Okay. They're, they're still there. The water is, is exercised uh, before as part of the rite. Uh, I don't know. That I haven't been to a baptism in a while, um, but I, I don't recall whether that was spoken out by the priest or just done in the course of his blessing the water for baptism. Mm. Uh, but no, the water is still exercised. Uh, the rites, uh, yeah, the rites uh, changed a, a little bit. Uh, immersion was not common in the Catholic Church simply because if you think about uh, the circumstances around the world, the missionaries and all of that, uh, sure, if there was a river or something like that, they could do that. And I don't know how the missionaries did that in in those kinds of countries. But certainly the the Church doesn't do sprinkling, which some denominations do, where it's just sprinkling you with water. The church pours water over the individual. It mm-hmm. has to run on the flesh, typically on the head, uh, to constitute baptism. Uh, after all, we wash we wash our bodies. Yeah, it's yeah. a similar sign of washing, spiritual washing. And uh, the but after Vatican II, yes, the example of full immersion uh, was restored. It wasn't as if. It was never possible. Yes, it was possible. It certainly is water that can run on a person and therefore could be could be used in baptism. And so now many churches, you can go into Catholic churches and there is actually uh, a place where immersion uh, can be done. Uh, and also some pouring is, is off also used. Obviously with babies, uh, that's the more typical thing. Um, so both of those are lawful, licit uh, ways of baptizing and are uh, presented as such in the, in the r- uh, rites of the church, in the ordos and the books used. Um, uh, and a- exorcism is still done, uh, just as it is, is part of the blessing of objects in that mm-hmm. uh, even if the blessing is a simple blessing, the idea is that it's set apart for God. And being set apart for God, then, of course, it is not compatible with the other possibility, uh, and so in, thereby exorcised. But actual prayers are, uh, are are used for that. And I know many priests still use uh, some of those prayers uh, mm. in terms of uh, blessed water. They use the salt sure. and so on. Okay. Joseph, thanks so much for your call. I was a full immersion guy. Did you know that? You were. Uh, well, I was. I, I became a Southern Baptist as a... Very young teenager, I think I was 12 or 13 or something like that, and then became a Catholic in 1997, much later on. Yeah, and your baptism was accepted 
Was yes, it, it was. was yeah. Yes, it was indeed. All right, it's uh, Open Line Friday. <laughs> Excuse me. Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. This weekend on Vatican Insider with Joan Lewis. Uh, Joan talks with Jesuit Father Michael Mayer. He is a native of Milwaukee and an expert on the Belgium-based Society of Bolandists. Are you familiar with this group? Yes. Mm-hmm. The Bol- or, or is it Bolandists? Bolandists is the way I've always heard. They, they prepare biographies of saints and mm-hmm. ecclesiastical leaders. Fascinating. Yeah, this, this has been one of the traditional works of the Jesuit order, actually. Oh, and very so good. You, uh, when, you, when you read old biographies, uh-huh. uh, I don't know what extent uh, in other biographies that have been uh, mm. generated, like the... the but, Lives of the Saints, yeah, uh, yeah. Butler's Lives oh, of the Saints, and so good. on. But they will often draw on material that the Belandis have put together. Very good. That's a Jesuit Father Michael Mayer, along with Joan Lewis on Vatican Insider. That's Saturday, 5 a.m. and 9.30 p.m. Right, Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. Pete is listening in Ontario uh, in Canada. Hey, Pete, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, very quickly, how are you? Very good. Good. Uh, quick question. Um, we know that we know that hell is is a real place where we know that Fatima opened up the earth and the children saw hell and mm-hmm. falling like snowflakes into mm-hmm. the abyss. But um, my question is, I've read various saints and a lot of them always say the same thing that even a human uh, in those last breaths of life, Jesus will come to that person for one last chance uh, so that they can at least go into purgatory. Um, so my question is, um, I know that even if you, if, if you die in mortal sin, the Church teaches that you go to hell, but if you die in mortal sin, and before you die, in your last few breaths, God comes to you, isn't, pur- isn't purgatory a viable uh, place? Uh, well, I don't know if that's right, and there'd be a number of... Regarding whether this actually happens is one thing, mm-hmm. but the principles there are quite clear, and that is... Uh, there is forgiveness outside of the sacrament by the true contrition of the individual uh, being unavailable to exercise the, the sacramental means. Uh, and so nobody will be divide, uh, denied salvation because they had not you know, access to the priest. So in the circumstances you describe where the individual has this option given at the moment of mm-hmm. death, mm-hmm. then yes, if they are disposed to it. You wonder of the viability and practicality of that, however, if their life in the years approaching that moment were not disposed, why they would then be, and, and why Christ would do so. Um, otherwise, would he not just give miraculous graces and special visions to everybody and save everybody and be done with it? And oh, by the way, we could have spit, you know, missed and skipped all that part about dying on the cross and so on. So I don't think it's that easy. Now, St. Faustina and among other mystics have talked about this. And I think, could there be a possibility that in particular cases the Lord grants such a thing? I have no way of denying or affirming that. But the point would still be the same, and that is, what is the disposition of the human heart were that to occur? Sure. Because the individual who is not disposed, for example, and goes into a coma and is not disposed and manifests that. So they've told their family, don't you send for the priest. So the family sends the priest. The priest should not be giving them 
uh, giving them absolution, anointing of the sick, because they've, they have with certainty manifested to others they are not interested in the rights of the church. Mm-hmm. So essentially, w- would, would the Lord do that? These are, this is the big question. Does he do it in some cases? There's no way of saying that he can't. There's no way of saying that he doesn't. Uh, and so that would have to remain an open question. But the church has a very practical way of proceeding in such cases, and that is you don't give the sacraments to people who don't want them. So how Christ proceeds in this, of course, is whatever the Lord wills. Sure. But I think that's not a bad way of looking at it. If he does it, it's because he knows that that possibility of repentance is there. Yeah. He he doesn't, with Pharaoh, he hardened his heart with simply a way of saying, I'm not wasting grace, I'm not wasting enlightenment on somebody who is a stone, yeah. a stone to me. Yeah, for sure. So I think if that happens, the Lord makes that judgment in his infallible knowledge and he does it if he does it, if that's, he wants to do that's, it. That's where we got to leave it. Hey, Pete, thanks so much for your call. Here is Marcus now in Marquette, Michigan, listening on Northern Apostle Radio. Hello, Marcus. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi. How are you doing? Uh, pretty good. Hey, I, a quick question here. I was wondering, is it possible for the Pope to fall into heresy by way of his uh, non-ex-catheter teachings? Um, it, would be some, it would be outside of ex-catheter mm-hmm. and making statements. But I'm wondering if he could teach something that's her- heretical. You mean over lunch or something yeah, like this? Yeah, No, no. Uh, that's, he could, because popes have their, there's a famous case of a pope who in his private opinion seemed to deny an, deny an aspect of the incarnation. Uh, and I think after they died, he's the one they excommunicated and threw in the Tiber. So I... But he was still Pope. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he wasn't making, it was a private opinion, and he wasn't making, uh, he wasn't making uh, a statement which was a teaching. But that which the church, which the popes affirm with some authority, should at least be given what the Vatican II called intellectual and respect of intellect and will. In other words, okay, in my judgment, that doesn't sound right, but I respect that he's the Pope and mm-hmm, so on. Mm-hmm. I don't know of a case where a Pope has made a, 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 a something that would be in any degree binding on the faithful mm-hmm. that would be in error. Okay. I think the charism covers that. That probably leaves 90% of what Popes say and write, you know, as not being, you know, we don't, we don't affirm that what the church teaches is positively inspired, but what it is negatively protected from error. And I think in those cases where the popes are teaching, it comes down to understanding what they're saying and the theological implications of it and the harmony of it with everything else. And then you ask the question, now, what degree of authority is this? And you can solve that problem. Okay. Uh, so it's it's not a straightforward question, and theologians can, you know, pull out their hair trying to figure it out in particular <laughs> cases. Sure. All right. And Marcus, thanks for your call. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. Here's Mary in Omaha, listening on our great partner there, Spirit Catholic Radio. Hi, Mary. What's on your mind today? Hello. Good afternoon. I would like a 
better uh, clarification of during the sorrowful mysteries, the last decade, mm-hmm. it is it's uh, uh, the Jesus died, and usually before you begin the ten Hail Marys, it's stated uh, the curtain in the sanctuary was torn in two. Now, with my limited mind, I'm trying to figure out what in the world does that mean. So, <laughs> if you could be a better okay, idea. sure. Yeah, there was, a, there was a veil over the Holy of Holies in the temple. There was the Holy, where the priests alone entered, and there was the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest on Yom Kippur entered in to make a sacrifice on, uh, in propitiation for the sins of Israel. And so uh, it's that uh, veil of the Holy of Holies where, the, in certainly, as you see in the Old covenant, God's presence existed. Even by a phenomenological sign, God was present there. Uh, We certainly, in the case of Moses in the Exodus, we have the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire to indicate. Uh, There there seems to have been at least some sense of God's presence in there, and certainly his word that he was uh, present with Israel. Uh, Split from top to bottom, bottom, I think that's uh, taken, I'm not sure if that's from Josephus, who speaks of an earthquake, mm. which seems to be simultaneously, in at least the recollection of the tradition, with the uh, crucifixion. And top to bottom, you know how things tear. They don't normally tear from where they're attached, but they tear from right. the loose end. Right. And this, the, the implication of that is, either actual or metaphorical, that with the death of Christ, that covenant has ceased. The sacrificial covenant of Israel has ceased. And the sacrificial covenant in the blood of Christ begins. That's the usual implications of that reference. Uh, whether historically we have evidence of that, I, I think you know, anecdotally, yes, in some writings and and so on. And we certainly know that within not many years, within one generation, uh, the Romans made quite clear that the temple was not to stand, and it does not stand to this day. No, that's true. Uh, Mary, thanks so much for your call. Could not get to Judy uh, checking in on YouTube this afternoon. We're going to hold that question over for another program. Colin Donovan, have a great weekend. You as well. A little quick program note for you this weekend. We're going to be broadcasting highlights from the 2022 Atlanta Eucharistic Congress, recorded uh, a couple of weeks ago at the Georgia International Convention Center, talking with Bishop Andrew Cousins, Donna Corey Gibson, Dr. Greg and Lisa Popchak, and more. That'll be uh, tomorrow afternoon, 2 p.m. Eastern, here on EWTN Radio. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price. We hope that you have a great weekend as well. See you next week here on EWTN Radio. God bless.